Seinfeld. The big salad is over, but we're just getting started here on Seinfeld, the post-show recap, a podcast about nothing. And now, here are the two guys who never get the big salad. I'm Rob Sister. Here's Akiva Winokur. Akiva, how are you? Uh, I thought maybe we'd get here. The guy, you know, we just each had a big bowl of kicks. Oh, <laughs> Yes. I mean, I don't know if I've ever had salad, so that's accurate. No, <laughs> I do like a big salad, to be honest. Full disclosure. The thing with the big salad is you'll end up like, oh, yeah, let me have some like avocado, tuna, throw in like 50 things. And then you're at like 4,000 calories in your salad already. Yeah, absolutely. You could have had, you could have had like two steak sandwiches for less calories. <laughs> yeah, big salad uh, on paper is probably uh, better for you than it is in practice. But we're going to be talking about it the second episode here of season six of Seinfeld and some fun stuff to talk about here. Yeah, Big Salad is uh, pretty famous, pretty well known. Uh, you know, some of the other stuff is maybe forgotten. The OJ links, things like that. But uh, there's there's a decent amount going on here. Yeah, I forgot that this episode was all sort of one big allegory for the OJ trial, which I guess after the summer of 1994 was very top of mind for the writers of Seinfeld. I think all of that OJ stuff, like the murder and everything goes down. I believe it's June of 94. And now here we are in September 94 and figuring when this episode must have been written and when they shot this, that it was probably hilarious topical humor for the moment. Uh, Yeah. People who, you know, our younger listeners won't realize just how big of a story the whole OJ thing was the the OJ chase was so famous. Um, you know, the whole it was didn't watch the thirty for thirty. I mean, did our did our younger listeners watch the thirty for thirty? Yeah, I don't I don't know, but um, I don't know about these what millennials. Is it like I don't June seventeenth, nineteen ninety four is what it's called. Oh, uh, well, yeah, but that wasn't just. Well, I think it was the eighteenth, maybe wasn't it June? I don't, 18th? Know, I don't know the exact date, but it's like. It's but yeah, that like, was good. But that also didn't just focus on OJ. That kind of focused on everything going on that day. Every you know the Knicks, the Rangers, all that stuff going yeah. on. Chase was the 17th, actually. You're right. After American Crime Story, People versus O.J. Simpson, then you think they'll, they'll cover this? I, what, in the, what, in the American will they Will they mention that it was mentioned on Seinfeld? What, what's your question? No, 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 no. I don't think they'll, yeah, they should play out the Seinfeld episode in that. But the O.J. Al Cowling's Bronco Chase. Is that going to be in there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so, because I think it starts from right when they get murdered. I... I know you discussed it on uh, a different podcast on most shows recapped, uh, which I listened to. And uh, I am beyond excited for the OJ show. I hope you cover it with 10 shows a week. It'll be great. Uh, if I, Chuck Klosterman saw the first six episodes and uh, couldn't have had better things to say about it. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. And so we're going to talk a lot about the OJ stuff, whether it still worked here today watching this episode uh, some uh, 21 and a half years later uh, and much, much more here on uh, the Seinfeld Post Show recap of The Big Salad, which originally aired September 29th, 1994. So, Akiva, you got any news for us this week? Uh, yes. Well, first of all, happy 55th birthday to Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Oh, looking great for 55. Yeah, great for 55. Uh, a bunch of people sent me a link to a Nerdist podcast. Uh, yes, I listened to oh, it. Oh, you did with Jason Alexander. Uh, Rob, can we role play for a second here? Yes. Okay. Uh, you. Uh, Love to role play. Yeah, you could be. Uh, uh, you'll be Bill Cosby. Okay. And I'm Chris Hardwick. Okay. Great. Okay. Great. So you're Bill. Now this is the start of our Nerdist podcast well, with Bill Cosby. <laughs> Bill. Chris, thank you for having me. That You know, it's been a. It's been a rough couple of years. Well, why has it been rough? Oh, 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 yeah. Your CD sales, right? They've been down, I hear. Like, <laughs> across the board, it's been hard for comedy albums to be selling. Is that what you're talking about? You know, that people saying a lot of things. And well, oh, what are they saying? Like, that your comedy's slipping? Just don't believe what people say. You know, oh, I would, tr- Bill, trust me, I would never believe anything anybody said that was negative. Uh, <laughs> are you saying that Chris Hardwick is a uh, sucking kneecaps interviewer? Is oh, that what you're saying? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he really couldn't be. I mean, listen, that's his thing that he's ultra positive about everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've listened to like if if the guest is interesting enough and he gets like some pretty high quality guests like he's had Tom Hanks and he's had a bunch of people that, you know, all uh, most other podcasts couldn't get. But uh, listen, if you're Obama, who's been making the rounds, you want to get, you know, uh, some yeah. positive message out. That's where you should be going. You should be. See, doing I haven't that. listened to enough of his Nerdist interviews. I do watch the Walking Dead or the Talking Dead regularly. 
I, I thought that he was very good with Jason Alexander, but really, yeah, he was very much selling Jason Alexander, greatest guy ever in the world. And then I, I actually started listening to a few other interviews, and I, he, he is very positive, but I didn't notice anything about it because of the small sample size. Is well, I don't watch the Talking Dead or Talking Bad or Talking Men or whatever he. Yes, I don't they know don't what do Talking Men. Oh, okay, but they, they uh, is he ever does he ever criticize the show? No, never, never. Everything and was that's always a bit different because he is like an employee. Like right, it's a tough for- spot. It's a tough spot. We talk about that, but it's every like. Uh, wow oh my god i can't believe it what an episode tonight i can't believe it. this was fantastic like that whole idea uh i don't know why people are saying that they didn't like that that was fantastic so everything is uh super super positive because even in the jason alexander interview and J- and and uh jason is a big walking dead fan who's been on the talking dead with uh hardwick before he gave a spirited defense i won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't listened but the most controversial thing that's happened in the six years of the show mm-hmm. universally yeah. reviled Yes. And he gave a long defense on why that was the right move to make. Yes, yes. So, I mean, you know, if you're Kim Jong-un, you should be calling up Hardwick and getting a, you know, getting a... If you're Donald Trump, like, these are those guys should be sitting down with Hardwick. He will, he'll make you look great. Uh, without spoiling it, what did you think was the most interesting thing that Chris Hardwick discussed with Jason Alexander? Okay, so I'll give you the Seinfeld-related uh, scoop. I was on an airplane, 80% asleep, but I was listening. He... The couple things he he went in a lot of detail it was actually interesting about their negotiations mm-hmm. um, between he, he, he season wasn't, nine it, I, he wasn't totally clear but I, I think he meant between season eight and nine yeah uh, those negotiations and how they asked for a million dollars one thing that I don't think has ever been said before is that they offered them I think uh, two hundred fifty grand an episode plus a hundred thousand shares of GE stock and then they sort of like google i think how the much money actually worth. was a little high i think that i i feel like it was the money was less than that per episode oh, 175 i think that maybe the offer is 175 in the hundred thousand shares of g stock yeah uh, i think you're right yeah and and so you know they went into like oh is that you know was, was that a good deal i think it ended up being 22 million they were having trouble calculating it just because the stock split a bunch of times i think mm-hmm. but oh you know ultimately i believe they did get a million dollars an episode for that last season so you know that was worth 22 million dollars yeah, but it is interesting that they never got they never got any syndication money. I guess they didn't want to set a you know sort of price on um, you know secondary talent, you know co stars, and and that's like a slippery slope. Once you start paying them, then like you know Newman's asking for points, and uh, you know the, the George's parents, Jerry's parents. Another thing that that Alexander said on the show was that he thought the two spinoffs should have been Jackie Childs, which I think would have. Maybe been like in that era might have lasted a couple seasons as a spinoff. It was done well. Mm -hmm. And if they did a spinoff of the parents in Florida, like the Costanzas and the Seinfelds, which I don't think uh, back in the 80s, there was a lot of shows centered around like uh, octogenarian type people like Golden Girls type shows. Mm -hmm. I think that that era had probably left by the time like you could do that show on like deep cable now and you'd be okay. I think. Yeah. But I don't know if that works as like a 930 on a Wednesday night, you know, on NBC sitcom. Also, I think it's a little revisionist history to say that Jackie Childs should have been the spinoff. I think that's sort of like following in the success of like Better Call Saul. And I think that the move for a spinoff now is to take like one of the more minor secondary characters and like build a show around them in their universe. I don't know if people were thinking that way in 1998. It's a fair point. I think, um, yeah, and and, and also he, uh, you know, Kramer spinoff obviously would have been the biggest deal. George had him. They each had a show, uh, uh, Michael Richards and Jason Alexander, that didn't work. He talked about George uh, Bob Patterson, which was uh, George's sort of spinoff with a, uh, I think it was a detective, maybe? Yeah, I think so. He's like a private eye. Yeah, and uh, so that show bombed, even though he said it was a good show. And then he did a show where he was uh, Tony Kornheiser. Yeah, yeah, with Malcolm Jamel Which White. I never saw, but that, that also... Uh, that also like the PTI tank. show. Yeah. Tony Corners are another uh, Five Towns, a uh, fellow Five Towns person like myself. Uh, love Mr. Tony. Yeah, he's good. He's a little cranky at this point. But, That's uh, great. That's great. That's how I envision myself in uh, only a few more years. Oh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we're almost there. We're almost there. Akiva, let's get into talking about the yeah. big salad. And Jerry talks about in the opening standup about how there, there are so many pens. Bic is making pens all the time, but people are always in need of pens. People can't find pens. Where are all the pens going? And I did get to start thinking about this. I think this is a very good point. I, I do think that they like sneak through the floors or something. I, when I was a teacher, it's really a big hassle. You come in and if you have a writing assignment, you have eight kids out of 20, let's say, that don't have a pen. Mm-hmm. And then you have like four four kids who have an extra pen. 
I know that I am always like, uh, like I, you know, add more pens to the rotation and then they're gone. I'm like, what did, what did happen to those pens? Yeah. So I've bought, I've bought hundreds of pens and on my desk, I know my kids come and take them, but like I could never, ever find one. I'll, I'll spend a half hour, like, you know, back in the day before you, you know, we had to like write down a phone number and I would like literally like keep a person on the phone for 15 minutes looking for a pen so I could write down the phone number. Yeah. So it is a good question. I do think, uh, you know, there was someone should at one point solve the mystery where the pens went. My move is that I will often have a pen behind my ear, which has been problematic as a parent now because I am now uh, poking my kid in the eye quite a bit. Like if I pick them up, I used to do a bunch of pens in the pocket, but then they always explode. And then <laughs> it's like it ruins your pants if they're light or it's like the pockets are gross or, you you know, you touch them. You don't you, you stick your hand in your pocket to get it and you don't realize it exploded. And now your hands all full of ink. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. All right. Well, let's get into talking about the episode. And we start off in a stationary store. Elaine is in search of the Rolamec 1000, which is an electronic pencil or a mechanical pencil for Mr. Pitt. You ever write with a mechanical pencil? No, I don't even really know what they are. It's sort of like the thing where it's a pencil. It's like almost like a pen shell, but you like load it like with like the stick of lead and then you can erase it. You've never seen this? Uh, I have seen it, I guess. It's a real product, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it is a real product. And I used to remember... I'm like, saying Rolamec, not just mechanical pencils. Oh, like have, yeah, uh, yeah. Like in like the 80s or 90s, I guess, like you'd get like a thing like had like a plastic case with like all the lead. But it was like very messy to be like handling like the stick of lead that you had to load into the pencil. I mean, I hope it wasn't actually lead. No, I don't know. And also... um on the website, I don't know if prices have gone down, but they're much cheaper than, uh, you know, a wealthy Mr. Pitt would have cared about. You know, they're, yeah. they're like $10, it seems like, on the website now. Okay, so Elaine has to order this. Who is this guy? He looks very familiar, the guy who works in the stationery store. He's actually, uh, his career, he's really made it more as a director. He directs a lot of television shows. I'm not sure if there's a if there is a show that you'd recognize him from. Yeah, he is maybe one of those guys that you see him in a lot of things. But so he's a creepy guy. He wants to take down Elaine's information to call her about when the pen comes in. Elaine gives the guy Jerry's phone number, but it's like one of those KL5 phone numbers, which I find always annoying on TV when they do that. It's very distracting uh, to hear. Like, it's fine if you do the 555 and you know it's a fake number to start putting in letters. Like, when did letters <laughs> enter phone numbers? To me, that's insane. And you, you can't do that. Yeah. You know, and, and keep the people. I in almost the feel like the move is just like, OK, write it down and then have Elaine say, yeah, I gave him your phone number. It's not like we know Jerry's phone number is KL52390. Right. Yeah. No, they, they definitely could have done a better job there. Yeah, Jerry says, hey, why'd you give him my number? And Elaine, obviously, it's because uh, this guy is a real creepy stationary store guy. Yeah, you know, that's the thing about stationary store guys. <laughs> so now this is also the first episode in which we get our full-on late-season Seinfeld New York street set. Akiva, did you watch the inside look for this episode? Yeah, they go into great detail how they made it. And, um, you know, it's cool how you don't really realize, uh, just, you know, us being micromanagers will probably pick up a lot of it in upcoming episodes. But when you're watching the show, you don't really think like, oh, these are the same 15 stores. But they really put a lot of work into it. It's very cool. Yeah, so they've got their whole street set outside now. And we see in a nice big wide shot, like the camera is like on like a uh, moving track and just following them from across the street, Elaine and Jerry walking. We run into George and Julie. And here is Julie played by Michelle Forbes, who is just another one of these people who's just been in absolutely everything. Yeah, Michelle Forbes' IMDb is unbelievable. I was going through it. She, I didn't really recognize her from one particular role, but she's, she's been in the, at least like 20 episodes of, of like dozens of different shows. What's your favorite all-time Michelle Forbes role? Uh, well, she's, you might know her from Star Trek, which of course yes, I don't know her from. Yes, Ensign Rowe. Yeah, but she was also on Homicide Life on the Street. Yeah. Uh, a show I don't remember called The District. Uh, it, uh, 24 season two she was one of the main characters had a good run on 24 uh, battle- yeah had a good run on lost no she was only in one episode i think <laughs> well it was important it was like she was like uh heading up like when uh you know i don't want to spoil Lost for people but oh at this point i think it's too late for those people yeah uh, i didn't love her on true blood i like that but that was really the first storyline on true blood it was like well, I, uh, this show is really too much 
Yeah, and she played a guy named Mitch on The Killing, or maybe a woman named Mitch. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't see that. But uh, yeah, True Blood I've also never seen. But yeah, very successful. Uh, she's on Chicago Fire, Powers, The Returns, really a ton of shows. She's in everything. Oddly, the, the, of the three you know, key guest stars, uh, surprisingly, the one who really didn't pan out career-wise is Margaret, Jerry's girlfriend. Mm. <laughs> Newman was right about her. You know, the new, yeah, the Newman stink really you know, ruined her. <laughs> really stuck to her. Okay. Do we know anything about this woman, Julie, that George is dating? I mean, she's like a very sort of like highbrow, talking about museums, talking about artists, talking about all these people that she's reading. We got no sort of backstory about her and how her and George met, what their relationship is like. It just seems like that she's like this very sophisticated, cultured woman who's dating George. Yeah, one of my pet peeves about this episode is that we really needed like another scene each of Jerry's girlfriend. And George's girlfriend, because, right, they at least they try with Julie, like her thing is that she's an intellectual. She talks about the New York Times opinion columnists. She goes to museums. You know, Jerry's girlfriend, we know nothing about her other than she's pretty and that she used to date George and he broke up with her. Newman. He didn't think she was pretty. I uh, used to date Newman and he broke up with her because he didn't think she was pretty enough. I think, you know, we don't really it, it's as funny as it is that Newman is sort of, uh, you know, that Jerry's dating Newman's ex-girlfriend, like. If we had sort of gotten to love her before that, maybe it, it uh, you know, it packs a little more punch. But yeah, we don't really have much to go with on either Julie or Margaret. Okay, so they cross paths. Jerry's with Elaine. George's with Julie. George and Julie are going to Monk's. And boy, George and Julie really spend a lot of time at Monk's for being such a sophisticated uh, person who's like taking in all of this culture. She's really getting a lot of meals at Monk's these days with George. And so they're on their way over there. And George, really for the first time ever in the series, asks another character, do they want anything from monks? Yeah, that is a little strange, right? Because you have to know as a cheap person, if you're asking that, you're going to end up paying for it or having to ask them for money, which is awkward. Right. And so Elaine, she says, I like the big salad, which she's never ordered before at monks. Maybe it's a new thing on the menu. George seems to have never heard of the big salad. Uh, no, I don't. George isn't much of a salad order, as we know. It's not the opposite of tuna on toast. Um, <laughs> he does, you know, but uh, yeah, George is stuck now uh, having to get her the big salad. The big salad. And so that's what she's going to get. And George says, what do I just ask for the big salad? She's like, you know what? Why don't you forget about it? It's like, no, no, no. You know, this is a little bit of like cocky, arrogant George trying to show off in front of Julie. Yeah, you don't want to cheap out in front of your new girlfriend. Yeah. Okay. Jerry and Elaine are talking about how dating is getting embarrassing. It's really this plot line doesn't go anywhere other than that Jerry wants to sort of stay in with his girlfriend. But they're both lamenting about how dating is becoming too much for them. Yeah, you're right. It's like an interesting point, but they don't really mind it for all it's worth here. Now, is this foreshadowing to a degree of that eventually George is going to get married, that Jerry is going to marry Janine Garofalo, Elaine is going to sort of settle in with Putty? Do you think that this is some sort of like setting the stage for these sort of shifts in these characters that's coming in these next couple seasons? I, I don't think they're as calculated as you're making it seem, but there is a little bit in this episode of like... Oh, yeah, everything has to revolve around them getting broken up with by the end of the episode because we need to explain why they're not there in the next episode. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, of course, Jerry's going to be thrown into the car and, and, you know, she's going to leave George because of the fight over the big salad. So there is a little bit of like, oh, yeah, dating is like it's, you know, as writers, it almost handcuffs you because you're giving them these girlfriends almost every single normal episode. And then they're also like you have to squeeze in the breakup at the end of the episode. So maybe there's a little bit of that in there. All right. So. After they're talking about that, we hear a big noise in the hallway and it's Kramer who comes in with his golf clubs and he talks about the encounter that he had with his buddy, Steve Gennison, who they just sort of nonchalantly put out there. Like, oh, the former baseball player. Of course, you remember him. And so Kramer got into a big argument with Steve Gennison on the golf course about that. Steve picked up the ball on the course and Kramer gave him a penalty stroke. And then Steve Gennison lost his call. Yeah, and it's hard to really, even though Kramer's right, uh, you know, according to the letter of the golf law, it's hard to really empathize with Kramer here because it's like call a guy who calls too many fouls in a pickup basketball game, right? Mm-hmm. Akiva, are you a golfer? I've gone golfing once ever. Yeah, did you like I'm a it? mini golfer. I do like going mini golfing. Mini golf. Kids. So do you have no sort of love of the game on the links? Well, I, I'll watch. Like, I'll watch the majors and stuff. So, I, you know, I definitely know the rules. 
But uh, I don't know how big of a violation this is when you're just out with your buddy. Yeah, it seems like it'd be a very ticky-tack thing to call if you're having a friendly game. Yeah, there's certain people who are just known for cheating in golf. And you sort of, you know, if you don't want to play with them, fine. But let, it doesn't really matter. I don't know. And how could Kramer even penalize him? He's not keeping his scorecard. You know, the guys, you're keeping your own scorecard when you're playing <laughs> for fun. It doesn't make sense. Well, they got really upset about it. Kramer says, without the rules, there's chaos. And so that's why Kramer had to be such a stickler here with Steve Gennison. Now, what I did not realize at the beginning of this episode is that this is all going to be one big allegory for the O.J. Simpson case. Yes. Yeah. Now you're watching it through those eyes. And, and, you know, again, a lot of people wouldn't recognize this at all. Even, you know, there are people who watch don't even realize the last scene, which is, you know, not even like, uh, you know, it's just a straight rip off the last scene. But, uh, you know, it may not hold up to a younger viewer. Yeah. I didn't realize that we were doing the OJ thing again until Jerry and his girlfriend are talking about what happened in the paper. Yeah. Were you a huge OJ guy at the time? I wasn't a huge OJ guy at the time. I mean, I think that I was sort of like, you know, inundated with it, like every other single person that was, you know, older than, you know, eight or nine years old in 1994. But I wasn't like, watching the you know court tv or whatever like the daily oj updates at the time yeah i was a huge oj person uh there was also one one of my good friends was like convinced that he was innocent so we would like argue in in you know whatever it was fifth or sixth grade like every day about the case mm-hmm. so i'd have to like you know come back with more facts because this guy could not be convinced that he was uh you know that he was guilty yeah he was very devastated when the verdict came back he switched schools (laughs) he well if he said oj was innocent the verdict was good for that i'm saying i was devastated oh you were devastated okay so we see george and julie over at monks and they're having this whole long conversation about different writers and stuff like that and george i don't know if he's trying just to make conversation or trying to come off as smart he starts talking about the atlanta falcons quarterback bobby a bear yeah this is maybe the craziest the side of the whole series Mm-hmm. This is like someone who's like a Falcons fan, like bet his buddy like, hey, I'm writing this week's episode. I know Larry's the writer on the episode, but like someone, you know, one of the writers like, I'll bet you $100 I could get Bobby Hebert mentioned in this week's Seinfeld episode. <laughs> I, you know, the odds of that, you know, do we don't do we get a Joe Montana reference like, you know, in the whole series? It's crazy that Hebert is in there. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, but I, I, when I did my 100 uh, greatest quarterbacks of all time. 101 greatest quarterbacks of all time. Number 100, Bobby A. Bear. 135 touchdowns, career, 124 interceptions. Wow, I was going to ask you, is this the highlight of Bobby A. Bear's career to be mentioned in this Seinfeld episode? Uh, probably, he probably mentions it. My here, my quote in the in the article was: A. Bear led the Saints to their first ever playoff loss. Also led them to their first ever 44 to 10 playoff loss. 36 20 loss and 27 20. So they lost three times in the playoffs. F- interesting note: He has a son named T. Bob. T. Bob A. Bear. That's a great name. I don't know yeah. if you're having a third kid, but T-Bob Sesternino really rings a bell. You know, that's I would go in that direction, probably. Yeah, he did T-Bob. throw for 24 TDs in 1993. Yeah, he wasn't bad. He was, Back then, there was like seven good quarterbacks. So he was like probably right in the next year. Yeah, so maybe like August of 94, he was like a hot pick in your uh, rotisserie football league. I don't know. Re- these guys were not playing. It was very not popular back then fantasy football but i do maybe think, they started it they got it going i think also the reason the scene is in there is just because like she's talking about the new york times sports second just to show you like the you know the, the the chasm between uh george and julie like she's talking about the most intellectual thing they could think of and george is talking about the quarterback for the falcons mm-hmm. sure so here comes the check for the big salad for their lunch and then the to-go box for the big salad. George uh, very nicely offers to pay. He says, let me get the check. But she picks up the bag. Were you surprised that George pays the check here? I think we're also establishing that he's trying to get this girl to impress. You know, if he really didn't care what she thought, he wouldn't have offered to even get something for Elaine in the first place. Mm-hmm. So she has the bag of the big salad to go. And then that is going to uh, pay dividends when we get back to Jerry's apartment. So back at Jerry's apartment, the phone rings. It's the stationery store guy. He's calling to say he ordered the pen. Yeah, this this stationery store guy. You don't hear much of him, you know, after this. But, uh, you know, you do. You, you, he does call a lot. <laughs> There's a funny line where Jerry is talking about how this guy really stops at nothing. Not even the fact that a man is answering the phone really makes this guy slow down with his pursuit and stalking of Elaine via telephone. 
And Elaine has the line says, or even you answering the phone. Yeah, a little little uh, burn from Elaine there. Little dig, little dig. All right, so then here comes Julie and George, and Julie is off to the Guggenheim, but first she gives Elaine the salad, and Elaine thanks her. Are you a Guggenheimer, Rob? <laughs> I have to say that I am not. You're not a big museum guy? Not a big museum guy. Maybe as I get older, I will become more of a museum guy. I have nothing against the museum. I mean, you, your kids might want to go to museums. Then you're going to have to, you know, get dragged there. Yeah. I think maybe if my wife was a museum person, then I would have been uh, exposed to it more. But no, my... Well, would you have married your wife if she was a museum person? I mean, my parents weren't museum people. My wife's not a museum person. I really have not been exposed to the museum life. Hashtag museum life. <laughs> okay, there's your hashtag. <laughs> so, no, I have not been exposed to it yet. Maybe I am a museum guy. You've just never done it. Yeah, it's possible. Or, like, it could be your favorite thing. That's your like, thing. like... Field trips, like when I was a kid. When we went on museum field trips, I would try desperately to stay home that day. Yeah, why? Even when I was a teacher, when I was a teacher, I would try and stay home when we went to museum field trips. They're just boring to me. Yeah, but you are a museum guy now? No, of course not. Okay, you're still out on the museum. But my kids hate museums. My kids think like, why are we going to museum? Let's go to like adventure, you know, let's go to like some (laughs) fun place. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems like a perfectly logical thing for a kid to say. I mean, if you, and if you bring kids nowadays, they're really going to be, uh, you know, they're just going to be like uh, on their phones the whole time at the museum. Like back then they were at least bored, but they were kind of stuck looking at it or making yeah, jokes. There was nothing else to do. Now, like especially if you go on a school trip, then you could bring your phones probably because they don't want anyone getting lost. So you're just on your, your phone the whole time, Snapchatting or something. Mm-hmm. Say, so, oh, I'm going to take a picture of this on my phone. Mm, no, it's a lot of selfies of themselves. <laughs> I'm t- I just sat down for lunch with my like two sisters who are in high school. Literally, nobody's looking up the entire time. (laughs) All right. So Julie is off to the Guggenheim. George is annoyed, though. And Elaine, she goes off to the bathroom and he says to Jerry, hey, did you notice what just happened here? And Jerry doesn't really follow what's going on. That Julie handed the bag to Elaine and she accepted the thank you. She took credit for my big salad. Yeah. And again, this is another great example of, of you know, the gang really arguing over complete minutia. <laughs> uh, the difference here is that Julie, for whatever reason, you know, gets involved and is just as bothered and uh, into it. You know, she becomes like, a you know, we've seen time and time again that they bring down whoever they're with to their level. Yeah. Now, this story, I guess, was based on something that actually happened in the offices of Seinfeld, where I think that one of the editors that she had gotten the big salad and like Larry's assistant went and picked it up, but Larry paid for it and she had given it to her or the, or they got delivered and she gave it to the woman who ordered it. And Larry was the person who didn't get the credit for the big salad that he paid for. Yeah. I was thinking about like asking, finding the people who they mentioned, cause they mentioned the, the editor, uh, Janet, uh, Chicago and the assistant who, uh, you know, I'm a, from research, it looks like it was a lady named Carol Brown, but mm-hmm. I didn't want to, like, uh, get arrested for stalking people. But I thought it would be funny. Yeah, to and like, ask about the big salad time. If we settled if we settled that, like, here and now on the podcast. Yeah. And so George says, you know, for when you buy a big salad for somebody, it'd be nice if you got the credit. I mean, it is true. You do want the reason you're doing nice things for people is to get the credit. So it would be nice <laughs> if uh, they acknowledged it a little bit. OK, so Kramer comes in and says, hey, turn on the TV. And we end up finding out a news reporter tells us about how Steve Gendison has murdered somebody, has murdered Bobby Pincus, the owner of the dry cleaners. Now, is this the same guy that we've seen in the different dry cleaning episodes? Like when Jerry and Courtney Cox are getting free dry cleaning, is that the guy that got murdered? I don't think so, because they would mention it more, right? They would be talking about how... Uh, yo, my gosh, like that's our that's our buddy. I don't think Pincus is the is their dry cleaner. There's a lot of dry cleaners in Manhattan. <laughs> Lots of dry cleaners. And Jerry seems to have disdain for all of them. Yeah, the, the show definitely has an anti dry cleaners stance. But I, to he, here, I think it's just an anonymous guy. It's not someone they know. Kramer is feeling somehow like he got Steve worked up enough with this golf game that he set this guy off to go and murder the dry cleaner. Yeah, yeah, it's a possibility. Yeah. And everybody's sort of like, hey, don't feel bad. It's not your fault. You know, people don't need any extra motivation to kill a dry cleaner. But Kramer is really beating himself up over this. I mean, listen, if someone murders someone because they're mad at you, like that's something that should weigh down on you a little bit. Yeah. 
We see now Elaine and George are in the cab, and this is when George ends up saying to Elaine that he was the one that actually paid for the big sap. Yeah, and Elaine seems more annoyed that he's even mentioning it than, you know, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, Elaine really, uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus has some funny reactions as she's like really just like wringing her hands into her face. It's hilarious. Uh, yeah, and, and it, you know, I think someone asked this in the comments, but where are they going? Why are they in, why are they in this uh, cab together? I don't know. We just needed to invent a reason to get them together okay <laughs> i don't know does do they live near each other i mean i don't think so we don't frequently see just the two of them in a cab together but maybe there was some scene that's not in the deleted scenes but there's a reason why they're going somewhere together okay so back at jerry's house he said he was going to stay in on his date uh, it didn't seem like he cleared it with his date margaret beforehand but they are staying in and Margaret is very into she's really one of these uh, true crime looky loos where she can't get enough of this story. She's all over the Henderson case. Yeah, I, I think. Well, first of all, do you think she'd be pro Stephen Avery or anti Stephen Avery? Oh, she would be pro Stephen Avery. She would have watched all of Making a Murderer in one day. And, and, and she thinks that he didn't do it. Yes. Yes. Okay. I don't know if she disagrees with the ex-girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a whole big thing. And so Margaret is uh, really into the case, and uh, she's going to be following every time we see her from the rest of the episode. Other than the thing with Newman here, she's always talking about the case. Yeah, so I guess they do give her a little bit of like a thing, but you know, not enough that we really care about her so much. Yeah. Do you think that she's upset that Serial is uh, shifting to biweekly episodes? Oh, man. I mean, again, this is just another example of us knocking Serial out of the park. Like <laughs> last, They did, what did they do, one episode or two episodes in uh, 2015, <laughs> and we did 52. And now, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, listen, we can make fun of what we want, but I read that New York Times article, and they still have 3 million downloads an episode. <laughs> yeah. They're doing okay. Yeah. Uh, but none this week. Listen, but if you if you hate it like you do, then you probably don't mind that you don't have any. <laughs> Take six weeks off. We don't care. Yeah. All right. So uh, we meet Margaret now for the first time. And uh, this is where uh, Jerry is explaining the whole Kramer thing. And uh, we're getting now that Jerry is saying that maybe Kramer might have got the guy worked up enough about it. I mean, listen, it's possible. But again, you know, you're just the straw that broke the camel's back here. Yeah. Okay. So now Newman comes by. He's looking for Kramer. He wants to get sort of the inside dirt on uh, the whole Gendenson case, right? Yeah, you know, Newman is very nosy, as we've established. So he, you know, he would love to know what's going on here. And when he sees Margaret, we see that there's a connection between them. Yes, he knows her. And Jerry says, oh, you two know each other. And Newman says, yeah, you might say that. We find out from Margaret that her and Newman dated. This is a very funny subplot here. You know, the idea <laughs> yeah. that, that New, you know, Jerry's pretty girlfriend is, you know, someone who Newman used to date. Yeah, it is a funny idea. I feel like it doesn't ultimately go anywhere. Uh, the showdown in Newman's apartment between Jerry and Newman could be classic and, and isn't. So they, they do sort of, you know, maybe waste some possible golden moment. It does come off as potentially the most antagonistic Newman that we've seen to date. Definitely to date. Uh, we haven't seen a ton of Newman so far, and we're going to get a lot more of him. But yeah, he's, you know, he, he's really established. I mean, Jerry calls him evil here. He's really established as, you know, the foil to Jerry even ever, you know, more than he's ever been. So Newman ends up leaving, and now Jerry starts to inquire more about the nature of the relationship between Margaret and Newman. And she said that they went out a few times. She doesn't really want to talk about it. And he wants to know ultimately how it ended. And she says that Newman broke up with her. And it seems to be a sore subject for her. Like, she really doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, how far do you think this uh, relationship progressed? Well, she says in the cab. Did they that, just have dinner a couple of times? Like, do, do, were they bo boyfriend and girlfriend? I mean, she says in the cab that about three dates, but she could be downplaying it because she knows that jo Jerry's so grossed out by this idea. So maybe it was more like five or six dates. But I, I, I think he wasn't attracted to her. So I'm not sure what happened. Yeah, it's weird. And we never really get an explanation for this one either. No, there would have been there could have been a funny tag at the end where like we yeah. find out more. But uh you know, you want to pitch any theories on this? Why uh, did Newman break up with Margaret? Well, he says that she wasn't pretty enough. Are you buying that? I mean, it, it would be a weird thing. Then why did he start dating her in the first place? I guess he realized like he'll only settle for for tens, you know, not nine and a half. 
We're going to get someone in the comments. We're going to get someone tweeting at you saying that I'm misogynist again. So I don't <laughs> I mean, do we see any other women that Newman is romantically involved with? I mean, he has a thing for Elaine, which is going to be a storyline later on. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has high standards, Newman. I, I don't know. Is it possible that he's lying? I, I think he's telling the truth here. I think what Newman's saying is canon. The idea that he wouldn't think this woman is pretty enough for him and that Jerry's dating her. I don't know how you beat that. I don't think it's canon. I think that there's an ulterior motive. I think there's another reason why Newman broke up with her, that he doesn't tell Jerry. I don't know. I mean, Newman does have a history of dating attractive women. Yeah. Like in the backwards episode, he has a model girlfriend. Because for me, I feel like if it was that there was something wrong with her, where it was like that Newman is right, that there she doesn't have a perfect face. I feel like that Kramer, when Jerry asks Kramer in the episode, hey, what do you think of Margaret? When Kramer says, oh, she's perfect, she's beautiful, she's a natural beauty, I love that, I love the curls, I feel like that Kramer would be the person who, if there was something uh, askew about Margaret, that his character would be the person who would be able to decide it for us. Yeah, I, I mean, it's an interesting point, I just don't know what other direction Newman was going in. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, ultimately. Maybe there was more to this idea that just never made it to the page. It's possible. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know. So... Kramer ends up coming in. He says they found a golf tee in the dry cleaner. So, I mean, I don't really, it doesn't seem like that there's any doubt that Gendenson was the murderer here. I don't know what the golf tee ultimately does to link him to a time and a place. Well, maybe that's part of their OJ allegory that there's no doubt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Jerry is at Monks with Elaine. And Jerry's explaining how she went out with Newman. Jerry can't get over this. Elaine can't see it either. Yeah. I mean, you know, she has, doesn't have much more respect for Newman than Jerry does. But, you know, uh, she does think, unlike Jerry, that Newman isn't completely evil. Yes. And this is where Jerry says, no, I've looked into his eyes. He's completely evil. Elaine says, maybe there's more than meets the eye. Jerry says there's less. So Jerry really getting a good hate into Newman by season six. Yeah. Or, you know, famous line like uh, that. He's a mystery wrapped in a Twinkie, Jerry says. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so Jerry ends up saying to Elaine that the guy called, he has the pencil. And Elaine's like, oh, that stinks because I just went out and bought the pencil. Like, wasn't this a real jerk move from Elaine to buy the pencil after this guy has been working on it for so long? I was thinking about this. I've never like worked in a store or anything. But if I call you up and I say like, hey, uh, I, you know, let's say you're a bookstore and I say, hey, Rob, uh, can you can you get in, you know, this book you don't have in and I'll come buy it. And then, you know, I go somewhere else and I end up buying the book like they're not making you they, like if I say, hey, can you buy this book? They're you may be getting it from the publisher or whatever, but they're not saying, oh, give me your credit card. So I'm going to order it for you. Mm -hmm. So this is a possible move. I don't know, like how stores operate, but you are sort of at the whim of like, you know, evil customers like Elaine who are, you know, going around and like, uh, you know, ask you to get it, but then taking care of it themselves. Yeah. It's not even like Elaine can say, oh, well, I didn't know what the status was of this. This is almost like Amazon.com of like you could see like every step of where the order has been like order has been processed. Order is like uh, being fulfilled. Order is shipped. It's on the way. I mean, this guy is doing it all. She knew exactly at what stage in the process he was at with the pencil. And she still went out and bought the pencil somewhere else. Yeah. Amazon, needless to say, has long since put the store out of business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This guy is out of work. And so, all right, so now she knows about that the pencil, she's got to go ahead and contact the guy. And now here comes Julie. And now Elaine spills the big salad to Julie about how George complained about how he paid for it. And Julie is very upset about this. Yeah, I mean, Elaine is really breaking the bro code here. Not sure why <laughs> she does this. Yeah. Is Elaine being vindictive here or is this actually just a slip of the tongue? I think it's it's not total... Uh, she doesn't have like a lot of malice but it's just her like making a joke and complaining about george yeah and so ultimately julie is very upset about this so now the next thing we see is jerry going to newman's apartment newman is like soaking his feet in some sort of like a foot tub and so jerry's like banging on the door newman let me in and he wants to know what's the deal with you and margaret yeah newman just needs a really pretty face yeah 
and he's really inside of Jerry's head. I mean, it's a tough thing to say. You know, you don't, you know, you don't want to hear like uh, someone else thinks that your, you know, your girlfriend's not pretty. Yeah. That's why I feel like there's something more to this. Like if it was something like concrete that he could really put his finger on, like, and, and like Jerry would be like, oh, that's actually really great to know. Thank you. But just the fact that he's like, so vague about it, like, I feel like that this is uh, really just uh, antagonizing Jerry. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what the motivation here is, but I, if anybody else has a better suggestion, I'd like to hear it for next week. <laughs> Be a great theory. And so, yeah, that Newman says, as long as she's attractive enough for you, then that's all that matters. He's really getting under his skin here. <laughs> yeah, he says to Jerry, want some lemonade? And Jerry just ends up storming off. You think it was poison, the lemonade? <laughs> I don't think so. All right. So now Kramer comes back and he's like reading from the rule book to sort of explain why he was in the right about this rule book but again you know i don't think we really care about the golf rules and kramer gives us a little bit of his backstory about how he had to be in bed before nine o'clock uh yeah first of all that's not is that even so like uh you know early for a little kid yeah oh my kid is in bed at seven o'clock right i don't know see he doesn't you know maybe he's in high school and then it's early but you know if you're in second grade i think that's probably on the late side uh yeah but yeah who knew like kramer's dad was adrian peterson maybe that's why we never see him (laughs) is that what happened something you know or or a precursor maybe it was mike ditka (laughs) maybe it was oj oh boy you just blew my mind (laughs) and on top of that then kramer adds in that he was talking about pinkus on the golf course uh gendenson was he was pissed. He doesn't have he doesn't have a lot of outs here, Gendison. It's pretty clear, uh, you know, there's a lot of witnesses and a lot of motives here. <laughs> yeah, there's really no doubt that Gendison is the killer. No doubt. <laughs> okay. And Jerry, Jerry says, this is good news. It had nothing to do with you. Yeah, I mean, maybe he set him off, but I guess it's good news. Yeah. Jerry wants to go back to this idea about Margaret, whether she's attractive or not. And this is the conversation which that Kramer says, no, she's a very attractive, beautiful face. She doesn't have to wear makeup. So... Kramer is in on the Margaret is attractive. I mean, Margaret, you know, objectively, she's a pretty lady. She, maybe she's not like number one or two in, you know, the Jerry's girlfriend rankings, but she's definitely an attractive woman. Yeah. Kramer's going to go off and see Gendenson, and uh, we'll see how that goes at the end of the episode. Yeah, it goes pretty well, I guess. So we see George and Julie now at Monk's again. George is talking to Julie about how he would play with dolls. He doesn't think it's a gender thing. Is George just way out in front ahead of his time with this? Yeah, you know, he, you know, we don't, we do like to talk about post-gender society now, but George, you know, there's a lot of George doll stuff coming up in the last few seasons. So maybe they're just making the bed for that here. (laughs) Right. I mean, considering that George's mom has an extensive doll collection, you would think that George playing with dolls uh, would be a possibility. And what about his uh, what about his future wife's like very fancy doll collection? <laughs> yes, yes, Susan's doll collection, right? <laughs> yeah, that, I think I got my things confused. So Susan has the doll collection, but there's a doll that looks just like a stout, right? Cor- correct. And I said wife, but but let's just call her fiance. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then Julie wants to change the subject to talk about what happened uh, with Salad Gate. Yeah. And again, this is very core four of Julie here where, uh, you know, she is like obsessing over something that she really shouldn't care about at all. Yeah. Why did Elaine think you bought the big salad? Like, this is insane. Like, maybe she just assumed it. It's not a question you'd ask. There's no reason to assume, even though if you really know George, I guess it's reasonable. But like, there's no reason to assume that, you know, George went out of his way to have a separate conversation with Elaine about who bought the big salad. Yeah. And George gets very indignant about the whole thing. He's like, are you suggesting I went out of my way to tell Elaine that even though you handed her the bag, that it came from me? Right. So they get into a whole argument about, um, you know, about thanking people for false, you know, under false pretenses, that sort of thing. I mean, where do you come down here on this? Uh, I mean, I think that Julie is certainly in the wrong here, but... Again, I don't know if this is a relationship ender. It seems like that both of them just wanted out of the relationship to me. Yeah, I, that was... is one of the things they're playing along here. That like these people have no business being together. You know, one of them is reading. You know, uh, a you know, uh, what's his name, Herbert? <laughs> yeah, Bobby Hebert. <laughs> and one of them is talking about Bobby Hebert, and he's not a, he's not a Guggenheimer. But yeah, I mean, to me, it's like who cares? Why? Also, you're a couple, so like. It's, I would never say like, oh, I bought this, not my wife, right? And I know they're not the sharing money stage yet. Right. Uh, and I don't know if anyone should ever be at the sharing money stage, but I think, <laughs> I think they, uh, so it's so semantics of like who, who cares who paid for it? We're together. Right. We're, we're a team. Like the issue here is probably they didn't do a good enough job setting up that this is the perfect woman 
and that George's uh, little minutia that he is obsessing over is costing him this relationship. It seems like they don't really get along anyway. It's not really a match, and this is just a convenient excuse to end it, whereas they've done well in other girlfriends that this is the perfect girlfriend or, in Elaine's case, perfect boyfriend. This person has everything. I'm head over heels for this person for whatever reason, and then this uh, stupid gaffe that they make ends up ruining everything. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, that's fair. But yeah, they do need to pitch her as a more... um, Yeah, like, this has to hurt you when he breaks up with her. You have to, like... Because this is an episode where the good guys lose. They both get broken up with. Uh, Elaine gets stuck dating a guy she has no interest in dating. And Kramer could be going to jail for all we know. Right. And he will. Yeah, I don't know if... uh, you know, I don't know, like, uh, you know, in a good guys lose episode, I don't know why they're not, you know, making it more of a downer. And maybe it's because she's, for whatever reason, not so likable. They didn't make the, her character so likable. Yeah. And I mean, for George, it's almost as if that, like, he's the even Steven in this because just like with Jerry, when uh, Rachel broke up with him a couple episodes back in season five, he's like, oh, it's OK. I'll meet somebody else. And then for George, it's pretty much the same thing. Like, okay, this person's dumping me. I'll meet somebody else. I'll have a new girlfriend by the next episode. Yeah, he doesn't seem too broken up here. And obviously neither is Jerry. (laughs) No. Okay. So then uh, after that happens, then uh, Julie and George, it's over. We see Elaine in the stationery store with the stationery store guy. And ultimately, this turns into that Elaine is now going to go on a date with the guy. This is pretty tough. Like, I I understand that Elaine should feel bad. Shouldn't she just buy the pencil? Yeah, seems like that. (laughs) Like, if you buy the pencil, you don't have to go out with him. So is it worth 15 bucks to not go out with him? Right. At the point she goes on a date with this guy, I don't know how this ultimately doesn't end with this guy turning into just a full-blown stalker. Oh, you know, maybe there's another OJ Carlera here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Watch out, Elaine and Putty. (laughs) We see Margaret now in the car with Jerry. Margaret is still talking about the Gendenson case. And Jerry is just obsessing about her face and how many dates she went on with Newman. And ultimately, she wants Jerry to kiss her. And Jerry says he cannot. Yeah, he could barely come close. He's just, you know, this is almost the scenario where in other episodes, you kind of see Newman's face, like, blended into her face. Yeah. But, you could have uh, seen that. They, yeah, they could have done that. But I, I never like when they do, so I don't, I'm not, I don't mind that they didn't. But yeah, I understand. The next thing we see is Jerry like being thrown out of the vehicle as if there was some sort of a car accident. How do you think that ultimately happened? Did she kick Jerry out of the car? I think she probably said, get out. And he's like, no, 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 no. And she, you know, because she is driving. I did like rewind it a few times to make sure that, you know, like, because I like at first it looks like maybe they're in the back seat, but you do see a, a, you know, a steering wheel and that she, you know, so she does sort of like, she probably says get out and he doesn't. And then she says it again and he's slow to get out. So he opens the door and she probably like physically kicks him. But listen, kids, domestic violence is not a laughing matter. With force uh, that Jerry goes flying out of the car. Yeah. I mean, this she could have gone to jail. (laughs) Yeah, you would think so. All right. So then uh, we end up with George coming into the apartment. And so uh, he's uh, very upset and says that, uh, you know, I'm not taking you to lunch anymore. You had to tell Julie about the big salad. I, again, this is probably the highlight of the episode. Yeah, and Elaine has to realize that she did the wrong thing here. Yeah, and George has the great line, you know, if it was a regular salad, I wouldn't have said anything, but you had to have the big salad. What do you think the big salad costs? Ten bucks? Uh, now I feel like it's probably like, you know, fourteen ninety five. You go to like some sort of like Jerry's Deli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, oh, for sure. Now it's fourteen ninety five. But what's... What what was it in in you know nineteen ninety four was it nine ninety nine, probably something like that. Okay, and the yeah. regular salad was five dollars. <laughs> sure. Okay. And so anyway, Jerry gets on the phone and they say you got to turn on the TV and we end up with sort of the white Bronco OJ Simpson chase and we see Kramer now in the car with Gendenson. Yeah, it, you know it's funny. Uh, I, I do think back then it was probably hilarious that they probably went hilarious. Direction. Absolutely, I I agree a hundred percent. I do not think it has held up. Okay. I mean, again, maybe it's back. You know, maybe it's back in now with the uh, with the case. You know, you know, there's, uh, you know, going to be a lot of uh, articles and stuff about the case now that there's going to be a big TV show about it. Okay. And then we see that Gendenson is uh, then yelling at Kramer. Kramer calls up on the phone and says that Gendenson needs to go back and get his goldfish. Uh, what is that referencing? Okay. So I'm not totally sure. I, I think... 
because what OJ wanted, I believe, was to talk to his mom. I remember there was something with the kids, but I do think, you know, and I could have, I, I could have researched this more. Uh, it's been a while since I read the book, but I do think he wanted to talk to his mom. Hmm. Uh, another problem I have with this scene, not really a problem, but like, so my, the, one of the funniest things about the scene, so Al Cowlings, his, his old teammate from USC, is driving the car in, in, in real life, right? In, in OJ life. Sure. And when the cops ask him who he is, the famous line he says is, this is AC, damn it. You know who I am. And he, as if like AC, like, you know, is like uh, MJ, like Michael Jordan or something, you know, <laughs> which yeah. is hilarious that he assumes that everyone knows who he was. But Kramer can't do that, can't do the, the initials because we don't know his first name is Cosmo yet. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I always, I always, that always annoyed me. <laughs> okay. And then that's how the episode ends on that beat. And then uh, we have our final stand up where Jerry says he doesn't think murder is the best revenge. There's a lot of other ways to get under somebody's skin than murder. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I do agree. Like, once you murdered someone, especially if you, like, shoot them and they never knew you were coming, like, you don't really get the revenge there. Yeah, then it's over. Yeah, yeah, you know, right. I, I do, like, yeah, I do like the idea of just torturing them by sending pizzas to their house. That's not bad. <laughs> okay, Kiva, let's start to uh, put this in perspective. Uh, in terms of the translation from... 1994 to 2016 anything that stands out is there any way like an app that you would have paid to see who got your salad i mean he could have showed her i don't think she ever didn't believe that he bought it but he definitely could have showed her some kind of uh receipt if he paid from with credit card which i'm not sure george is paying with credit card but you know he if he did that uh you know there'd be a lot of tracking technology on their phones to see like where to see where Gendison was at the time of the murder. Yeah, and he would have been really screwed by DNA at this oh, point. Oh yeah, DNA would have rocked him. <laughs> you know, DNA on the on the golf t- the golf tee that was inside the uh yeah, the dry cleaner that would have been, you know, smoking gun. Yeah. Okay, so then let's do our letter grades for the big salad. Uh, where do you want to start? Um, uh, we could start with Jerry. Okay. Jerry's grade, his storyline is that he doesn't want to date the woman who dated Newman. I think the idea is really funny, so I'm going to give it a B. They don't have the one home run scene that maybe, you know, even the reveal could probably be better. I'm not sure how, but, you know, we just critique the episodes. We don't write them. Uh, <laughs> but I'll give it a B. You could do B plus. If you went lower, I wouldn't argue either. Okay, then I, I agree with that. Uh, what about Elaine with the stationery store? It really doesn't go anywhere. You know, D. Mm-hmm. Then what about George with Julie and the big salad? I mean, the idea is funny. I think the first time you watch it, it's a lot funnier than the rest of the time. Um, so, I'll, you know, I'll give uh, I'll give George a B minus there. I'll give it a B plus. I think he really saves it at the end with if it was a regular salad, I wouldn't have said anything. <laughs> but yeah. you had to get the big salad. Yeah, that is pretty funny. Yeah. And then finally, Kramer as the person who uh, sets off Gendenson to go and commit this murder. You know, it's very similar to like dozens of other Kramer storylines. It's a lot of everybody else. You see what they're doing and Kramer comes in and tells you what's going on with him. Which we, mm-hmm. you know, we see you know, there's a lot of like dinky donuts and Yankees camp and things like that that happen a million times. Uh, but that's a B plus. You know, it's pretty funny. Uh, if it doesn't hold up, well, it's not their fault totally that, you know, they wrote this for a 1994 audience. Right. The pop was probably worth it in 1994. Of, like, yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, if right. If they said, you know, if they were doing this episode that, you know, and they told their friend like, hey, what's what are you guys doing this week? And they said, oh, we're doing a big OJ thing. That would have been, you know, a big story. Hilarious. So, Hilarious. you know, we can't really kill them too much for uh you know, not holding up as well. <laughs> yeah, leave that to OJ. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, where did you put this in your episode rankings? Um, okay, you know, this is tough. I, I do think that it's one of those that I thought was much funnier, you know, back 20 years ago than I do now. There's not really any terrible scenes, but I don't love the Elaine stuff. Uh, so I have it at number 95. Okay, I think that's pretty fair. Sort of middle of the pack. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into our Seinfeld emails. These come in every week. Seinfeld at postshowrecaps.com. Why don't we start off with Johnny DeSilvera? He says, let the record show I am answering this because you two asked me to last week, not because I follow Miss America or anything. No, listen, Johnny, we know. We know you don't. We're not, you're not into it. Especially, why would he be into Miss America? He's into Miss Canada. He follows a lot of American stuff. That's true, he does. New York had a three-year winning streak until Georgia broke it the last time. Rhode Island has never won, and only New England state that's won has been Connecticut in 1933. Wow, New England's got to really start. You know, maybe it has to be like uh, you know the U.S. soccer team, where they like they bring over a lot of players from Germany and Mexico now to sort of mm. compete with the big guns. Like, it, what if what if like uh, you know there was like two supermodels who get ma- you know two models who get married, and like Massachusetts 
sort of raises them from the age of five and, you know, tries to, you know, manufacture these pageant winners because only one winner for all those states. That's pretty lousy. Johnny also wants to know whatever happened to Steve Gendenson, uh, did he ultimately get charged with the murder of Pincus or did he get off the hook due to a bad DA just like OJ did? I think I think you got to continue the OJ thing. I, I do think Gendenson gets off. Out, you know, Kramer may have sat in jail that night, but, you know, long term, you know, we know he's already out by the next episode. But Al Cowlings really never gets charged because there was no evidence that he was really involved with anything or that he had any sort of grand plan. And it was such a mess that Cowlings doesn't, you know, doesn't serve a minute in jail. And Cowlings, the best part about the Cowlings story, and I don't know if this, this show will get in, I, I'm not even sure who's playing Al Cowlings um, on the show, but mm-hmm. he sets up, he's such like an evil, like genius type of guy that everyone's asking him for, for you know, answers because, you know, they figure he knows more than anybody. So he sets up a 1-900 number for the media to call and you have to pay like a lot of money a minute to ask him questions, but he'll answer them, which is kind of brilliant, right? It's pretty smart. Like if media, if the media wants to know, you know, like, oh, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, what's going on, but you need to pay for it. But they screwed up the money somehow, I think, and, and he never really got the money from it. Hmm. But he also never went to jail. All right. Well, this is the first OJ big joke that we're going to make other than the thing from when uh, Elaine wants Joel Rifkin to change his name to OJ. So this is in episode two of season six. Uh, Jackie Childs will be a big part of Seinfeld down the stretch. He will not make his first appearance, I believe, until season seven in The Maestro. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Childs, who, again, you know, they wanted him for uh, the non-fat yogurt episode, I think it was. Um, But yeah, Childs uh, will appear starting next season. And of course, he's, he's a Johnny Cochran type character. All right. Amir weighs in, wants to say, from Julie's reaction to Elaine's big salad joke and her follow-up conversation with George, it certainly feels like Julie understood that her handing Elaine the big salad would absolutely make Elaine assume that she paid for it. How can it be such an innocent mistake when Julie's brain so quickly jumps to the relationship between her handing over the salad and paying for the salad? That being the case, I have a hard time seeing how she can be so upset at George when her actions weren't as innocent as she's pretending they were. Good point. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that Julie is a bit of a poser and somebody who wants people to think that she is more distinguished and perhaps wealthy than she actually is. And as sort of this pretense of her affluence, I think that she is trying to like, oh, here you go, Elaine, because she's a poser and trying to pretend like she has all this money and culture when she may not actually have that because she does not pay for salads and she dates George Costanza. Yeah, it's that's a fair point. I, you know, how how fancy can she be? By the way, uh, breaking news, Rob. Oh, OK. So the person playing Al Cowlings only appears in two episodes of the uh, American crime story. Uh, People versus O.J. Simpson uh, has been mentioned on this very podcast. Who you care to guess uh, this episode of this podcast? You care to guess who it is? Is it Jackie Giles? No, but there are limited <laughs> options because it's clearly an African-American man. And we've only mentioned a few during this mm. episode. Bobby A. Bear is a white guy. Right? He's a white guy. Correct. Uh, Tim Bob. Uh, T-Bob. Uh, the T-Bob gives it away. T-Bob. That's correct. <laughs> T-Bob gives it away. Fair point. <sighs> hmm. Oh, it's good. Who is it? Malcolm is Jamal it? Warner. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wait, wait I, I, you're going to lose your mind. I'm going to lose my mind because I, I care so much about this case. And in four episodes, yeah. Isabella Balbi is playing Courtney Kardashian. Are you kidding me? Y- yeah. <laughs> Are you like how I knew that they would do that? Because yes. not that Robert Kardashian's not a very important part of the story. You know, he's playing Robert Kardashian, right? It's sensationalism. Yeah. But I, like, why, why not just have Kanye be in like eight yeah. of the ten episodes? Like, I, <laughs> I want to know how. Yeah, what was she like? Uh, two years old? I want to know yes. how, you know, how they get her into four episodes. I'd love to see that. I, I, this is this is maddening. But you know, who's playing Robert Kardashian. Uh, who is it? Schwimmer. Yeah, that's yeah. that's great. Good stuff. Rob, I'm telling you, this is going to be... Friends Reunion is coming, too. Yeah. Well, I, is it a Friends Reunion? Friends Reunion coming to NBC. Oh, man. Yeah. Paving the way for Seinfeld Reunion I don't, on NBC. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. They got everybody for Friends Reunion. Evan Handler is playing Alan Dershowitz. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no in between for the show. It's going to be the best show in television history, the worst. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it'll be fun. Okay. All right. So then uh, also, uh, wait, hold on. This is just in uh, Matthew Perry will not be able to make it for the Friends reunion. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Oh. Sorry about that. Yeah. Sorry about the false alarm, everybody. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, Amir also says that Jerry has a deep-seated hatred of dry cleaners. He cites that uh, the dry cleaner who admitted to Jerry he shrunk his shirt in the stock tip, the 25% dry cleaning guy in the wife, uh, the question of dry clean paying etiquette when Kramer vomits on Susan in the ticket, and Willie the dry cleaner wearing Jerry's clothes in the secretary. We got a real historian here. I do think uh, there is way too much dry clean related humor. That he really must have had had it in for some kind of dry cleaner. Yeah. Okay, let's take uh, Craig from Vancouver, who says a Newman story may be his most complete story in the series. It dives into the Newman character like never before. The fact that he's getting under Jerry's skin on purpose is so funny. This does bring up a question I have. Have either of you ever dated? <laughs> Boy, I bet that. Uh, <laughs> most of these questions about uh, our dating lives are probably always no. Yeah. Uh, have either of you ever dated and broke up with a woman who was clearly out of your league? Also, I think that we have the Twitter question of the week. And what was the mystery of Newman wrapped in a riddle or a Twinkie? Yeah. So Craig seems to imply that there is more than meets the eye here as well. Yeah. And, and for his first question. Not less. Yeah. I mean, Craig, you've listened to what, 100 episodes of us, 90 episodes of us at this point, And you're asking if we've dated and broken up with women who are clearly out of our league. Thank you. Yeah. yeah come on. Come on now. Other than our current wives, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so what do you think of that Twitter question? I mean, it's tough to answer, but, uh, you know, tough to answer. Yeah, I, I'd say a Twinkie. What is it? What's the name of the food that he that he eats uh, that's on Jerry's counter in this episode? Mm. Uh, he it's a he calls them chunkies. Chunkies. Uh, is that a real chunkies? Food? Yeah, it's a can- that's a candy bar. That's a chocolate. Well, you don't like chocolate. You wouldn't like it. Right. I've never heard of chunk. Yeah, sort of like a block of chocolate. It still exists. Uh, probably. Okay. Probably. <laughs> OK, uh, Liz Gardner has a question. Uh, wants to say thanks for discussing making a murderer. Of course, if you haven't heard uh, Akiva, myself, and even Chester appearing on that podcast, you can find it on postshowrecaps.com. I was stuck in traffic and it made my drive more pleasant. I'm not sure about Avery's guilt as Akiva is, but I am sure that the evidence presented should not have been enough to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. So again, if you want to hear more about not Steve Gendenson, but Steve Avery, uh, you could find out that in the Making a Murderer podcast. Are you and Akiva the type of people who need to be given credit for doing something? If I, if I, like, I made my wife like a nice birthday thing last weekend with the kids. Like, we planned this whole thing and it went off really well. And I mentioned it in about 40 conversations in the two days afterwards. Like, I wanted mm-hmm. to remind her. Obviously, the credit only lasted until the next time I did something stupid, probably two hours after, you know, we celebrated her birthday. But yeah, I did. Well, I did give myself credit maybe a hundred times uh, over the next week. Yeah. If you ask my wife this question, she would say that, oh, he has to be given a pat on the back for anything he does. So it's very difficult because I, the only reason I do nice things, you know, I try to, you know, I'd like to have, a, you know, at least be recognized I've done something good. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it. You can't win. You just can't win, right? But then if I mention that I did that thing, then it's like, ah, oh, I know you told me twenty times already. Congratulations! Right. Well, medal. now you've made me not want to do nice things. Yeah. Well, okay. Are you happy now? This is a zero sum game. <laughs> it's true. It is a zero sum game. Yeah. All you have to do is you know recognize these nice things I do, and then there'll be more of them. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, well, hopefully, when my wife listens to this podcast, and she'll see the error of her ways. Oh, no question. She'll she'll see the error of her ways for sure. Yeah. All right. Then finally, Chester wants to know, Jerry claims he's bought 6,000 pens in his life. Who pays for a pen? Don't most people just steal them from work, banks and hotels? Well, aren't the ones at the bank on a chain so yeah. you can't steal them? <laughs> Do you bring like a chainsaw to the uh, the bank? You bring like one of these huge machetes to the bank with you? Chester's stealing all the pens. I think they just get a lot of freebies at work. Yeah. No, well, I like to have a certain type of pen. I, my preferred pen, Akiva, is uh, I like a gel pen. I've got a Pilot G2 sort of a gel pen has like a like a nice rubber grip. That's pretty fancy. I want to. So when I was teaching, I'm like I, Mr. Pitt, yeah. When I was teaching, <laughs> and and I mentioned before, like I'd give out my pens because it's like you could yell at the student, you could whatever, you could be annoyed at them that they don't bring a pen. But if you're giving them some sort of writing assignment and they don't have a pen, you know what they're going to do, Rob? What's that? They're going to cause trouble because they have nothing to do. Like they can't write. Yeah. So they're going to start, you know, playing with the other kids, distracting them, getting up, jumping around, want to leave the room. So it's really in your interest for them to have a pen. So I'd always have extra, but sometimes I would run out. I'd like give out my own, then I'd never get it back from the kid. There would be classes. This happened a few times where I wouldn't have a pen for myself by like my final period of the day. Yeah. So my move, I, you never want to be like the idiot teacher doesn't have a pen. That looks really stupid. <laughs> so the move is I'd be like, does anybody have a black pen? I really need a black pen to write in it. 
And then if you're asking mm-hmm. for a specific color, they're probably like, oh, Wieneker's got 30 blue pens or 30 red pens because he's a teacher. He doesn't have a black pen. And I get the black pen. All right, Akiva. Great work today on the Seinfeld podcast, the recap of the big salad. What is the hashtag for today? Well, what did we say before? I usually write it down. I can't find it on my paper. Maybe I need uh, my, unfortunately, my Pilot G207 was defective today. Yeah. What about defective t- in not writing down the hashtag? What about T-Bob A. Bear? <laughs> T-Bob A. Bear? How do you spell that? Uh, well, T-Bob, I think people will get. And then A. Bear is H-E-B-E-R-T, as George spells in the uh, yeah. show. Now, the problem is I just have to, way too many pieces of paper in front of me. I have <laughs> just and I figure I always figure that you wrote down the hashtag. I never, I never. Wrote I down. usually do, but I can't find uh, where I where I. What about I'd... Guggenheimer? Is Guggenheimer better? Guggenheimer? Uh, yeah, I think it's okay. It's, uh, again, it's hard to spell. I think that's always the well. Challenge. I mean, Guggenheimer. It's just Guggenheim with an er at the end. Like, okay. how many mistakes can you really make in Guggenheim? It's one G at the beginning and two Gs in the middle. Again, if you're sending it to Akiva and myself on Twitter, then uh, we know what you're trying to yeah, say. Yeah, we'll know what you're saying. Really, right. we'll figure it out. You can follow Akiva on Twitter. He's at Keeve26. I am at Rob Sesternino. And, of course, uh, you could subscribe to the Seinfeld Post Show Recap on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher in whatever podcast directory you want. Search for Seinfeld Post Show Recaps. All right, Akiva, we will be back uh, next week. What are we talking about? Next week, we got the pledge drive. We got Mr. Pitt cutting a Snickers bar with a fork and a knife. And the return, the much anticipated return of Danny Tartable. Danny Tartable is all over season six. Yeah, it's really the season of the Tartable. (laughs) Season of Tartable. All right. Thanks so much to Mike Moore for the episode recap. And of course, thanks to Scott St. Pierre for putting this all together. Akiva, anything else? Uh, No, just, uh, you know, everyone go out there and and, uh, start preparing for the OJ series. (laughs) All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Bye.